Seltzer Kings podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, I'm Gavin St. James, the junior producer of What the Hell Were You Thinking? It's October, that can only mean one thing. The drunk idiot is going to tell you a bunch of lurid tales about murder and ghosts because he thinks they are scary. I'll tell you what's scary, working with that man. Terrifying. So without further ado, I present to you Spooktacular 2021. The only thing scarier is real life. Yes, Gavin, I know that it was called Samhain. God damn, I've read a book. Look, it's an excuse to kids to get candy and for the rest of us to get drunk and wear slutty costumes. Yes. The following podcast contains... Ah, oh, the f*** you do that for? Hey, that was... Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swirls. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you replaced medicine with deadly poison and killed a bunch of people for no fucking reason. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is episode number 333. It looks like a big deadly Tylenol edition of the show. Where we talk about that time someone killed a bunch of people by putting cyanide in the Tylenol. Part of Spooktacular 2021, so stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Poison Pill Investment Strategy. You want to say, come on, guys. We know that corporate investments already have a bad reputation, and maybe we deserve a little of that, but this whole killing people with actual poison pills is just not fair. All we are is a financial maneuver to keep one company from buying up a bunch of stock in another company in order to take it over. Okay, we get it. It sounds bad, but it has nothing to do with, you know, actually poisoning pills. Jesus, that's some fucked up shit. The Poison Pill Investment Strategy. It's just a name, people, not something you should actually do. As we know, the children's Tylenol, the chewable, have not been implicated yet. Exactly what is going on right now. They're just assuming that it could be the cyanide-laced capsule also. The phone has been ringing off the hook at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. It's the regional poison control center for the entire Chicago area. Poison specialist Lane Olaf. Oh, we've been receiving calls uh, about once every 15 seconds. At Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's, we only have three poison lines and they're lit up constantly ever since yesterday morning right now they're telling people which lots of Tylenol are known to have contaminated capsules and checking to see if callers have displayed any symptoms of cyanide poisoning if uh, they have that tell them to go in the emergency room if they don't have that and they took it yesterday we just tell them you're, you're probably gonna have no problem with it just hold on to the bottles don't take any Tylenol extra strength for the time being until you hear otherwise most of what's going on here is informational officials here say Say, right. If anyone has taken a cyanide-laced Tylenol capsule, well, they, they probably wouldn't it. be able to make it to the they phone to call. They used to. I'm Jeff Locke, CNN, at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. My mom was, and is, a very pragmatic person. 
She didn't have a lot of time or energy to deal with shit that reasonably she thought could be handled by us, her children. She wasn't cruel about it. She didn't expect us as three-year-olds to cope with the vagaries of life. But by the time we hit seven or eight, she reasonably, or so she thought, assumed that we could handle some basic shit. Like if we're hungry, we could jolly well make ourselves a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There was no reason to involve her in this. That sounds reasonable. This included some basic common sense applications of basic common medications. If, for instance, you had a headache and you came to her complaining about it, she would ask you if you had taken an aspirin already. And when you said no, she would tell you not to come complain to her until we had done something about it, like, you know, take a fucking aspirin. She figured if we were old enough to figure out how to open the childproof cap, we could probably be trusted not to take half the damn bottle. And that worked out well enough, I guess, until a young Dave managed to tear a fairly large hole in his knee and treated it with a Band-Aid and some Bactine. Welcome to my little emergency ward. Here's my cut and scratch case. And here's Bactine antiseptic. Bactine kills germs that can cause infection. And look, no sting. Kate here is my sunburn patient. Bactine sunburn relief cools her off with lidocaine. That's a pain reliever. Very soothing. Keep both Bactines ready for your little emergencies. And help her stop her. <laughs> Which was totally insufficient to the actual injury. The whole thing got infected. I wound up going to the doctor to get my wound debrided and was put on a long course of antibiotics so I didn't lose my leg. And that's when we found some framing about what it was that she meant by take care of it yourself problems and what was, you know, you should actually tell mom problems. If there were copious amounts of blood, you should probably tell mom about that. Not long after that, we had to adjust the rules again. What did you do this time? Well, I certainly didn't kill a bunch of people in Chicago by putting poison in extra strength Tylenol. I mean, I was 12. The fuck was I going to get to Chicago? Tylenol? as I'm sure all of you know already, is the trade name for acetaminophen, which again, I am sure each of you already know is a, quote, organic compound, acetaminophen differs from other common analgesics in that has it has no anti-inflammatory properties. It's less likely than non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to irritate the stomach lining, harm the kidneys, or affect blood clotting. On a molecular level, acetaminophen structure is consisted of a benzene-ring core. It contains a hydroxyl group and a nitrogen atom, or an amide group or acetamatide. Several of the molecules atoms are conjugated, meaning double or triple bonds are separated by a single bond and electrons are shared across this bond. There are two activating components making the benzene ring highly reactive, yet the acetaminophen melting point is high at 336.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Huh? I did not know that. First introduced to the market in the United States in 1955 by McNeil Laboratories as a fever reducer and pain reliever primarily targeted for children under the name Little Hotheads, which uh, seems a bit harsh towards the kids. It became a Johnson & Johnson product in 1959 when they bought McNeil Laboratories. Johnson & Johnson marketed as an over-the-counter stronger pain reliever that won't upset your stomach like aspirin tended to do in those days. Right here, it's just pounding out. Mary Lumato has a headache, a pounding headache, and we're going to ask her to test a new and potent pain reliever, new extra-strength Tylenol. 
By the mid-1970s, Tylenol was the largest selling drug in the American market and a real moneymaker for Johnson & Johnson. According to a Washington Post article from 1982, Tylenol was selling three times the number of its next closest competitor, Aspirin, on primarily the strength of ad campaigns, claiming that it was extra strength and more effective at reducing fevers. Despite this being debunked in a Consumer Reports article around the time, which is said, according to the Post, quote, Consumer Reports in its August issue dismissed most of Tylenol's claims. Acetaminophen has no advantage over aspirin as a painkiller, it said. Milligram for milligram, the two are virtually identical in effectiveness. The same holds true for fever reduction. Both are equally effective, unquote. So things were looking pretty rosy over at J&J headquarters heading into cold and flu season. Always a real sales booster in late September, early October in 1982. No one had the slightest reasons to suspect that something very dark, very evil was about to go down in Chi-Town. On September 29th, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up feeling shitty. She went to her parents who told her, stay home from school, take some Tylenol and go back to bed. Mary entered the bathroom and took two extra strength Tylenol from a brand new bottle in the medicine cabinet. Minutes later, Mary's father heard something fall in the bathroom and went to check on the sound where he found Mary on the bathroom floor. Paramedics were called to the house and attempted to resuscitate Mary, who wasn't breathing, and immediately took her by ambulance to a nearby hospital where she was declared dead just before 10 a.m. It was tragic, but there was no reason to be suspicious of the circumstance. She was scheduled for an autopsy, primarily because of her age and the bizarre circumstances of her sudden death. Investigators noted in the preliminary reports that the only medication that she had taken that day was two extra strength Tylenol. On the same day in Arlington Heights, a 27-year-old postal worker named Adam Janice called out sick from work. He picked up his children from preschool and stopped in the Chicago drugstore chain Jewel to pick up something for his cold, a bottle of extra strength Tylenol. Around noon, he made it home, had some lunch, and told his wife he was going to, quote, take two Tylenol and lie down. Moments later, Janice came staggering back into the kitchen and collapsed. Dude, what the hell? Oh, this gets so much worse. Paramedics were called and he was rushed to the hospital and at a little after 3 p.m. he was declared dead despite all efforts doctors made. They simply could not his, get his heart beating again despite Janice being a young and healthy man. His family gathered at the hospital and the doctors broke the news to them and simply couldn't give them an answer as to why Adam Janice had just suddenly died. At around the same time as Adam Janice's family is dealing with his sudden death, Mary Reiner, the young mother of four children in Winfield, is not feeling well after recently giving birth to her fourth child. She takes two extra strength Tylenol and suddenly collapses. She's found by her husband a short while later, rushed to a nearby hospital where she is declared dead a few days later. What the hell is going on here? Oh, it don't, it's only going to get worse. At around 5 p.m., the Janice family, yeah, you remember them, they were gathered to console each other at Adam Janice's home, grieving and discussing funeral arrangements. Adam's younger brother Stanley asked his wife, Teresa, to get him some... No. No, don't say it. 
Yeah, he asks for Tylenol. She hands him two capsules, and then she takes two capsules because, you know, it's been a stressful day and she's got a headache. Moments later, Stanley collapsed and immediately after that, down went Teresa. <laughs> What's this, this is fucked up. <laughs> the f- this is really fucked up. The fire department was desperately trying to save them and rush them back to the same hospital they'd just left hours before. Stanley died shortly after admission, and his wife clung to life for another few days before she eventually passed. As you might imagine, this aroused some suspicions amongst the fire department and the medical staff. Three people from the same family, all young and in presumably good health, do not just suddenly drop dead in the same place on the same day. Investigators in Arlington Heights began interviewing people and they headed towards the Janus home to see if there was some kind of environmental reason why people suddenly were just dying there. Meanwhile, over in Elmhurst, Mary McFarlane is at her work around 6.30 p.m. when she complains to her co-workers at the Illinois Bell store that she's got a headache and asks if there were, well, you know. Do you have any Tylenol? Unfortunately for Mary, they did. She went into the back room of the store, took two capsules, and within minutes, she was on the floor unresponsive. She would die two days later. Meanwhile, back at the Janice home, public health investigators are going through the house sifting for clues. They don't find anything obvious. There was a metalworking setup in the basement, and they knew that sometimes metalwork used toxic or poisonous chemicals, but none were found. All they did find was a shelf full of over-the-counter medications, including a new bottle of Tylenol with six pills missing. They did some quick math, three dead people, two tablets each, six tablets, and they put two and two together. Nah, I suck at math. I'm good at weed. They took that bottle of Tylenol back to the hospital. On the morning of September 30th, the lab results came in for the Tylenol capsules. They each contained up to a thousand times the amount of cyanide needed to kill a human. Every single capsule in the bottle. They had four confirmed deaths that they knew of in Arlington Heights, and that was enough to bring an attorney from Johnson & Johnson's who was convinced there was poison in them, their pills. And they didn't even have to force feed him a pill or anything to convince him of that. The Cook County Medical Examiner's Office contacted the CEO of Johnson & Johnson and told him they had to go public with the information as soon as possible. James E. Burke, the CEO of the company, reportedly said, Do you have to? To which the ME officer reportedly replied, Do you have any better ideas? And Burke was forced to admit that short of crossing our fingers and hoping for the best, he did not. At 10 a.m. on the morning of September 30th, Cook County announced that multiple people had died from being exposed to cyanide via extra-strength Tylenol. Local police were instructed to go out and physically remove extra-strength Tylenol from shelves across the Chicagoland area. Reactions to this news could be considered... Calm, mild, rational. No, Spock is just shitting you. It didn't take long for people to lose their goddamn minds. Across the country... Indeed, across the world, people began tossing out their Tylenol even if they'd already used pills from the bottle. Which, okay, I guess that's understandable. They also threw out their Anison, their Bayer, their Excedrin, their Nuprin. Little, yellow, different. Okay, Nuprin hadn't been invented yet, I just wanted to play that drop. They flooded poison control lines across the country believing they, 
who did not live in Chicago, who had not even taken a Tylenol, were definitely suffering from cyanide poisoning, which the poison control lines all had to treat seriously instead of telling them the accurate, if harsh, truth that if they had been exposed to Tylenol, and you'd be dead already. It pains me to do this, but actually Johnson & Johnson stepped up immediately and did the right thing. They recalled the lot numbers from the bottles definitely tainted to Chicago instantly and followed up soon with a nationwide recall on all Tylenol products. They opened their doors to investigators who quickly verified the poison came after leaving the manufacturing plant and ponied up a million bucks for any information leading to the capture and conviction of whoever killed seven people in Chicago and terrified the nation. They also promptly announced they would be implementing tamper-resistant packaging that we all know and love today, which is why everything from medicine to garlic powder has that little foil seal on top. So good for you, corporate America. You earn a cookie for this one time not being selfish and evil. But someone out there had definitely been... He's a very naughty boy! ...and had murdered seven people totally at random. Several other bottles of tainted Tylenol were found in the unsold products pulled off the shelves, and who knows how many poison bottles were thrown into the trash by Chicago area households when the alert went out about the poisonings. Someone had literally purchased pills filled them with cyanide, and returned them to the stores sometime in late September, and no one had a single idea as to who that might be. Everyone was involved in the investigation. Local, state, and federal law enforcement, the Food and Drug Administration, this one guy named Quick Eddie who hung out on LaSalle who just knew a lot of shit, I mean everyone was involved. Tip lines were set up and thousands of tips poured in, overwhelming investigators. And they had suspects, like Roger Arnold. From the Chicago Reader, quote, A 48-year-old dock hand Arnold liked to frequent Lincoln Park taverns and pontificate. One evening, he made some barroom chatter about the Tylenol murders that gave observers pause. Someone dropped a dime. Officers arrested Arnold on a four-month-old assault complaint brought by a bartender and used the opportunity to interrogate him about the poisonings. A series of coincidences raised eyebrows. Arnold worked at a jewel warehouse with the father of victim Mary Reiner. And according to the New York Times, police received a tip that Arnold's ex-wife had been committed to the psychiatric ward of a hospital located across the street from the Winfield store where Reiner purchased her Tylenol. In his apartment, Arnold kept a stash of Soldier of Fortune magazines and how-to crime manuals. He took annual trips to Thailand. A skull and crossbones were tattooed on his forearm. He was also a closet chemist. A search of his home reveals several unlicensed guns, a bag of chemical powder, and beakers and funnels. The powder turned out to be potassium carbonate, not cyanide. Arnold told reporters, I'm not saying what the chemicals were used for, but it was nothing illegal. Arnold refused polygraph examinations and was charged with assault and weapons violations and released on a $6,000 bond. A very angry man. For months, he fumed. He allegedly told his interrogators, I'd like to be on the homicide of that guy that turned me in for what he did to me. The 46-year-old computer consultant, John Stanisha, probably knew nothing of the vengeful Arnold. He just happened to be leaving a Lincoln Avenue bar after last call on the morning of June 18, 1983. The heavyset Stanisha resembled the man Arnold believed had implicated him in the Tylenol case. 
Arnold had been stalking that man, and in a deadly case of mistaken identity, he approached Stanisha and yelled, You turn me in, you son of a bitch! Shooting him at point-blank range. Later tried, convicted, and sentenced to 30 years for the murder, Arnold is now out on parole. Investigators never charge Arnold with the Tylenol tampering, nor do they mention his name today as a person of interest, unquote. The media was running story after story on the nightly news all over the country, feeding the hysteria, but not one single useful lead turned up until Johnson & Johnson received a letter. Someone wrote them saying, quote, Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to replace cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account number 8449597 at the Continental Illinois Bank in Chicago, Illinois. Do not attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you could possibly do." Unquote. The FBI quickly traced the letter and the bank account to a Chicago area travel agent, Frederick Miller McKay, and then swooped in on him. And McKay was like, Dude, what the fuck? After tearing through his life, they soon realized he didn't do it. And they asked him if anyone had a grudge against him, to which he was forced to reply, Several. But this instance was probably someone he knew by the name of Robert Richardson and his wife, Nancy, with whom McKay was in a protracted and bitter dispute. Investigating Richardson, they soon knew who wrote that ransom note. The handwriting was a perfect match. Problem was, Robert Richardson was not a real person. Well, I mean, he was a real person, but that wasn't his name. After going public with a letter and a photo of Richardson, the real name was found and he was a suspect in a murder in Kansas City and also wanted for tax fraud. Jim Lewis. The feds tracked down Jim Lewis in New York City and Lewis was trying anything he could to get McKay. He investigated for the murders, even threatening to kill President Reagan. These guys always with the threatening and never with the doing. He was writing newspaper editors and just generally playing cat and mouse with investigators before they finally caught him in November. Despite Jim having a colorful history, he was definitely a crook. Trying as hard as they could, they could find nothing to connect Lewis to the Tylenol murders. I mean, they really, really tried, but despite a monumental effort by the FBI to tie him to the actual murders, they found nothing. He was convicted uh, for, of extortion for writing the letter of Johnson & Johnson, which he definitely did, and he served 13 years in prisons during which he would communicate with the task force investigating the Tylenol killings and drop tantalizing hints about a deeper knowledge of the crime, but nothing could ever be substantiated and nothing ever linked him to any of the Chicago poisonings.
In 2010, long after he was released from prison, he was compelled to give DNA samples for comparison to DNA in the poisoning case. And again, he was no match and cleared. Almost every investigator on the case from then until now feels that Jim Lewis was involved in the murders, but no one can prove anything. As recently as 2018, from what I could tell, Jim Lewis is alive and well in Cambridge, Mass, and is still to this very day considered a person of interest. Of course, there were copycats from Wikipedia, quote, Hundreds of copycat attacks involving Tylenol and other over-the-counter medications and other products also took place around the United States immediately following the Chicago deaths. Three more deaths occurred in 1986 from tampered gelatin capsules. A woman died in Yonkers, New York after ingesting extra Tylenol capsules laced with cyanide. Excedrin capsules in Washington state were tampered with, resulted in the deaths of Susan Snow and Bruce Nickel from cyanide poisoning and the eventual arrest and conviction of Nickel's wife. Stella for her intentional actions in the crimes connected to both murders. That same year, Procter & Gamble's Inacropin was recalled after a spiking hoax in Chicago and Detroit that resulted in a precipitous sales drop and a withdrawal of the pain reliever from the market. In 86, a University of Texas student named Kenneth Ferries was found dead in his apartment after succumbing to cyanide poisoning. Tampered Anison capsules were determined to be the source of the cyanide found in his body. His death was ruled as a homicide on May 30th, 1986, but on June 19th, 1986, the AP reported that the Travis County Medical Examiner ruled his death a likely suicide. The FDA determined he obtained poison from a lab in which he worked, unquote. They would finally peter out in 1986 when tamper-proof packaging became the standard and the norm for everything you fucking buy at the store, including condoms. Honestly, how do you fucking open those things? You're standing there, you've you're got a hard on, you're biting it with your teeth, you're pulling it this way and that, and your dick is just starting to droop and you still can't get the goddamn thing. Sorry. So there you got it. The condensed story of some of the most notorious and yet largely forgotten murders in American history. People today don't think about them because the steps taken to keep them from happening now actually worked. But you simply cannot imagine the panic that set in when people suddenly realized you could be killed out of the blue by literally buying something at the store. You know, like cigarettes or alcohol. Some of the investigators mentioned in my research wouldn't buy over-the-counter medications for decades after the killing. Today, of course, pills are safe. No one can easily slip poison into your medicine with all the wraps, foils, and seals on everything. You can rest easy that something like the Tylenol murders can never happen again. Now, if you really wanted to kill a bunch of people today, you need to get some, say, botulinum toxin. Mix it up and inject it into a bag of pre-chopped salad and slip it back on the shelf. That cool, moist bag would keep the botulinum alive and healthy. And you enjoy a nice Caesar salad and BAM! Drop dead in your pasta. Or, hey, you could even spray it on the salad bar at the Golden Corral. You could kill a bunch of people that way. All it would take was one of those little perfume diffusers up your sleeve. Pop, pop, dead! Addie's even mentioning something like dusting the surface of anything with rice and powder. You could do it anywhere. You know, just, you know, you're get on the subway and puff, 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 and then just wait for people to start dropping dead. Be as hard as hell even today to figure out who was doing those kind of murders. What the hell are you doing?
Well, I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just saying, you know, it, it doesn't have to be pills inside of packaging. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. Our very first show for Spooktacular 2021. I like to start the month off with a little mass murder before digging into the really spooky stuff, which is where we're heading next week. But I'm going to leave that for a scary little surprise. Speaking of surprise, over on Patreon, we have exclusive content all month long for the Spooktacular. And all for just one measly dollar. This week, we're talking about why people check Halloween candy for poison. I mean, besides the fact that you can get all the really good candy before your kids can get to it. Yeah. We're telling the tale of the real Candyman, Ronald Clark O'Brien, the man that ruined Halloween. And you can hear it for just $1 at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. We'll also be running midweek specials all month that were last year's Patreon exclusive because, damn it, we love spooky season. Rate and review the show wherever you get your pods so that others can hear us and be terrified that you would suggest to them that they listen to something as bad as us. All of my simple ways to commit horrible crimes can be found on the social at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. And every terrifying moment of this show is archived at whatthehellpodcast.com. And you know what? We are still a proud member of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network who would really prefer if we did not instruct people on how to commit felonies on their feeds. So for me, Dave, take two Tylenol and call me in the morning if you're still alive, Bledsoe producer. I fail to see how you're making jokes about a horrific tragedy it is anyway permissible. Gavin and all the fictional Nuprin users on this show, we want to say... Oh, it's a big, pretty white plane with red stripes and curtains in the window and wheels, and it looks like a big Tylenol. And we'll see you all for more spooky content next week. <laughs> What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.